This evening we're going to have a reading from both Old and New Testaments. In the bulletins there should be an insert with the notes for tonight's study. Also a reading from the larger catechism that we're going to be looking over at the end of the sermon. The scriptures tonight we're going to be reading from in the New Testament is Acts chapter 8. But before we read that, we're going to be in the Old Testament. So if we'd start in Psalm 38, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Psalm 38, 1 through 10. And the context and the focus on this reading of tonight's psalm is going to be on repentance. So verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. Now if we turn to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9 this evening, we'll read. And this will be the text tonight that we base the sermon on. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands, their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall and bitterness and in bond and iniquity. And Simon said, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We ask that you will open our hearts and minds to the message given by Mr. Bissett. Give him what is needed to explain the truths of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight's sermon is going to be on true and false repentance. Now, to think that you have something when you do not, in about a month from now, hunting season is going to be on, on its way for deer hunting. And I'm reminded of a story of a man who on opening morning, drove out to his land, got out of his car, and he walked to his deer stand. Gets to his deer stand, and it's about 6 a.m. The sun's just barely starting to come up. He can barely see ahead of himself. And after about five minutes of sitting in his stand, he hears some rustling in the back on the trail that he took in. So he's getting excited. He slowly turns his head. And he sees a mountain lion on the path that took him to his deer stand. The mountain lion was trailing him. So he gets kind of concerned, holds his gun a little tighter. About five minutes pass, the mountain lion's no longer to be seen. So the day passes, he sits in his stand, the sun's starting to go down. He starts to get down from his stand and walk back towards his car, keeping in mind that Earlier in the morning, that mountain lion was on his path. As he gets to his car, he gets about 50 feet, and he hears some rustling in the brush behind him. He has no idea what it is, but he runs to his car, and he shuts the door, and he just lets out a big sigh. He turns to his right, and he sees his bullets sitting on the chair. He opens up the chamber of his gun, and he realizes he forgot to put the bullets in his gun. So that entire time that he's sitting in his deer stand, and the entire time that he walked back and forth on that path, he had a false sense of security. He thought, well, if something were to approach him and to harm him, he would have defense. But what he forgot to do and we forgot to realize to do is to put the bullet in the chamber. So this evening we're going to take this example and analyze the difference between true and false repentance. Repentance, simply defined, is a change of mind leading to a change of action in Christ. So why is this an important topic? Why are these distinctions so important to understand? We would be wise to listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are people who had thought that they truly believed. These are people who really truly thought that they had repented, that they were doing the Lord's will. So just like Simon, who we saw in Acts chapter 8, Simon the magician had a false understanding of what it means to repent. Tonight's message isn't intended to belittle or demean or point fingers at anybody, but the purpose is to give a true spiritual diagnosis of what the Lord requires for the salvation of our souls. Nobody enjoys being the bearer of bad news. No doctor likes to come back from the, with the lab results and tell an individual that they have cancer. But they do this. Why do they do this? Because they generally care about their patient. They want to see the patient cured. Likewise, in spiritual manners, matters, why do we speak the truth in love? Because we're generally concerned for the person who's our neighbor. We're generally concerned for the person we work with, the relative, the person who is not saved, the person who believes that they have a false sense of security, that they have taken care of what they needed to take care of for the Lord. So we see here, repentance is an easy word for people to ignore on purpose. Many people are so in love with their sin. Many people are so in love with their sin and their sinful lifestyle that they never ask themselves if they stand right before the Lord. They don't want to. They simply want to love their sin. They simply want to live in it and be left alone. Others think that they don't have any reason to repent at all. They think that their good works outweigh their bad works. So on the scales of justice, they've done more good than they've done bad. So therefore, when they enter into the presence of the Lord, they believe that is what is going to save them. If confronted with repentance, generally what we see from a lot of people is they push it down. They suppress it. They avoid answering it. They don't want to talk about it. It becomes a trigger word. They lash out. They become defensive. They know that if they looked any further into their sin, not just superficially, but examined their hearts and took a look at the intentions of why they do what they do, it would take away from the joy that they have in that sin. So what we see with people is we're very good at creating a religion that suits our needs but does no harm to our sin. You may have heard people say, I find myself to be spiritual, but I'm not religious. I find fellowship with God more out in the woods than I do in church with a bunch of Christians. I've heard that excuse hundreds of times over. We're really good at creating a religion that suits our needs, where we think we are right in our standing before the Lord, but kind of takes our sin and brushes it aside and doesn't confront it. Others, such as American author Henry David Thoreau, when asked if he had made peace with God, Thoreau said this, I didn't know we ever quarreled. So there's some people who think that their relationship with the Lord is perfect, that they have not sinned against him, that they have not offended him. So the first is that we ignore repentance on purpose. The second is repentance is also a word that can be easily misunderstood. Some incorrectly believe 
All I have to do to be forgiven is simply say, Lord, I'm sorry. God can see deep down in my heart that I'm generally and naturally a good person. Yeah, there's times where I do things wrong, but he can see that I'm well-intended, that I would never really harm anybody. Others believe because they've raised their hand at the end of a church service that that automatically qualifies them to be Christian. Others believe because they went up to an altar call to receive Christ. Therefore, they are now classified as a Christian. Therefore, they have fulfilled all of the Lord's requirements. Others think simply because they said the sinner's prayer, that that qualifies for the standard of what God is looking for. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that these aren't ways people have been saved in the past. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that just because a person has done one of these things does not automatically mean that they have truly repented. Now look at Simon in Acts chapter 8 for an example. After the people of Samaria believed the gospel through Philip's preaching, in verse 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So the question you have to ask yourself is, was this a genuine conversion? Did he truly repent? Or did Simon have ulterior motives as to why he did what he did? Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, speaking to Simon, for your heart is not right before God. But I thought it said in the verse prior that he believed. Wasn't he baptized? Didn't he have all the boxes checked? Did he not meet all the requirements? The answer is no. Verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. So the question we ask ourselves is, why is it so important to have a correct understanding of repentance? Jesus says in Luke 13, 5, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John 8.13 teaches us that if we have not believed in Christ, we are presently standing before him condemned. Verse 36 of John chapter 3 says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains upon him. So false repentance does not bring forth forgiveness. False repentance is like driving your vehicle thinking you have insurance when you do not and you get into the accident and you realize you are not covered and you have to pay the bill. If we refuse to repent from our wickedness and acknowledge that we are sinful before the Lord, what Jesus said in these prior three verses is that we pay the eternal consequences for our sin. So a false understanding of the Lord often arises from this. When people hear repent or perish, when people hear of the sinful nature, of the depravity of the human mind, people start to think and get a connotation of God in their head that God is this angry, cold, distant person who's commanding us to repent out of fire and brimstone, that he becomes this cold-hearted person. But if we take a look at all of Scripture, we find that this isn't the case. Ezekiel 18.23 says, the Lord's speaking here, and he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live. 
So Jesus is giving us the clear warnings in the gospel. God's giving us the clear warnings all throughout the Old and New Testament to repent. Not because he's full of this anger and he loves our death, but because he genuinely wants us to repent. Later in Ezekiel, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So we're seeing the Lord pleading with the sinner. This is a demonstration of God's love towards us. He does not have to do this. He does not have to give us these clear warnings, but he's doing it. So we see a genuineness from the Lord. These warnings from the Lord are very serious and they're very real. We have to have this distinction down between false and true repentance. So Jesus gives us the mandate. He commands men everywhere to repent. But he does this out of genuine concern. And he does not delight in the death of the sinner. So what are some examples of false repentance? What do we generally encounter when we're talking and sharing the gospel with people? First example, some who hold to false repentance or a false understanding of repentance have what's known, it's called legal terror. Legal terror is simply defined as a fearful understanding that they stand guilty before God. Generally, when I, I'm telling people that I'm in seminary or when I was doing hospital chaplaincy or jail chaplaincy, I walk into the room and it says chaplain on my badge, I instantly would, I would always get that, that look. I can't really describe what it was, but it was an instance of, oh, I, I, go, I go to church, I believe, you know, they become defensive real quick. Because instinctually we know that we stand guilty before the Lord. They know deep within themselves that there's true moral guilt, but they only fear the punishment. They are concerned only with the consequences of their sin, they do not have a genuine repentance towards the Lord. So if you're still in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 8, look at verse 24, the example of Simon. Verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So we're seeing here Simon is not seeking genuine repentance, but rather a way out of experiencing God's judgment. So there's a difference here. There's this legal terror. We know we stand guilty before God. We're scared of the consequences, but we don't want to repent. Legal terror further illustrated. Revelation chapter 16. I'll read verses 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plagued into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Revelation 6 says this, the people of the earth hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So there's fear there. They're chewing off their tongue. They're hiding under the rocks. There's genuine terror, but what we're not seeing is true repentance. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner. It is quite another thing to be a repentant sinner. Fear does not automatically result in true repentance. Example number two, the vow maker. When I was a chaplain at the jail, I would often read the annual sheriff's reports and they have statistics and all of the numbers and I came across a statistic that said 72% of the current inmates of that year 
will reoffend. Meaning seven out of every ten people who are in that jail will commit another crime and be back. So 30% who go in never come back, but 70% do. I can't remember how many times I would have a, a one-on-one with an inmate or be preaching a Bible study in the jail. And the inmate would swear up and down. He vowed to get his life together. He vowed to get new friends and get rid of the old ones. He, followed, he vowed to find a good church. He promised he would get help and he'd get treatment. A month or two would go by, the name would come back on my list, and he'd be right, right back up on my Bible study. That happened so many times. Now what we're seeing here is the vow maker who thinks by his own efforts and by his own will and by his own determination, he's going to get this done. A man may purpose within himself, make a vow to God, look very holy, look very genuine, look very sincere, and yet still not repent. Jeremiah 2.22 said, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. So present circumstances. Generally, when an individual is in an uncomfortable circumstance, causes them to speak like this, causes them to make these type of vows, not because there's true sorrow for the sin, but because they're in pain and they're in agony. So the Lord may be giving him a bit of preparatory grace in the sense of exposing their lifestyle before him. And when they come in contact with circumstances that are very uncomfortable, they realize that they're standing guilty before the Lord and they, they have this inner desire to do good. But the second their foot gets out and tastes that freedom again, they end up turning right back around <clears throat> and going into the lifestyle that they're trying to previously get away from. So an example of this that we see in Scripture if we remember the, ten, the plagues of Egypt, Pharaoh and the plague of hail and thunder knocked down all the trees and plants and the vegetation. Pharaoh said, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. So Pharaoh's tapping. He's had enough. That plague, he said, that's it. So Moses stretched forth his hand. And the plague stopped. Did Pharaoh truly repent? No, he still hardened his heart and did not let the children of Israel go. So we see just because we make a vow to the Lord does not mean that we have truly repented. Example number three. Turning over a new leaf, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. People are generally good at deceiving themselves. When they come aware, they become aware that they stand guilty before the Lord. Instead of repenting, they try to present their own efforts and deeds before the Lord to compensate for their sin. Through their actions, they demonstrate discipline and responsibility. But in their heart, there is no real change. Now, the world has always approved of this type of repentance. The type of repentance that they are coming clean. That they are admitting that they're wrong that they're making a change, that they're developing a new me. The world has always applauded this. But in spite of this, when God convicts their hearts, they feel the need to establish their own justice before him. They do something good in return. They kick the habit. They become more responsible. They donate their money. They give themselves to charity. These are good things, but they're external things. 
instead of repenting from the inside, instead of a true repentance, a true conversion before the Lord, they cover it up with their exterior works. Now we see an example of this in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, where it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with, ten, with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So what more does the Lord want? What can I do? Can I give this? Can I give that? Being very exaggerant. What can I do before the Lord? In verse 8, he says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what God commands these people to do is exactly what they thought they were doing. But because it was simply an external affair and not an internal one of the heart, they were sinning before the Lord. So a person may be rehabilitated and yet never have repented. Turning over a new leaf, picking yourself up by your bootstraps can be very dangerous. Why? Because what you just did before the Lord becomes an idol. What you just did by your own efforts, you put in between you and the Lord and say, okay, Lord, now you're going to accept me because I did this based upon my own efforts. It causes them to think that they've met God halfway. And since they believe that they've overcome their sin, God, God now looks favorably down upon them. So we see here people can be very rational and practical at times. It's not hard to see when a specific type of sin is ruining our lives. But instead of true repentance, we find a detour. We find a way to get around that so we don't have to confront God face to face. So we don't have to give up specific sins that we love and hold on to. Rather, we dismiss the sin. And the simple dismissal of sin does not automatically result into a changed heart. So indicators of false repentance. Again, the seriousness of when a doctor comes in the room and shares the lab results with you. You want the truth when you hear these things. If something is wrong with you physically, you, doctor, just please tell me what it is. You want that from the doctor. Same thing spiritually when we give ourselves a spiritual diagnosis. We want what the truth of the gospel says about our sinful condition. So what it comes down to then is the sensitivity to our sin. If you find yourself laughing and mocking at Christianity and biblical studies, if your mind is set only on the things of this world and you don't have any desires for the kingdom of God, if you lack the desire to deny yourself to submit to the lordship of Christ, if you find that your walk in the woods is more spiritual than fellowship with other Christians in church, that may be a good indicator that false repentance has happened. So, we discussed false repentance. Now shifting gears, what is true repentance? And if you take out your insert, we have Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 76. It defines this perfectly. It says, what is true repentance? We'll read through it. I'll read through it one time and then we'll break it down. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Wrought in the heart of a sinner... By the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, 
and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such our penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoringly, constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. Let's break this down. First of all, repentance up to life is a saving grace. So the Lord grants us the saving grace to repent. Due to our sinful nature, due to our depraved nature, we don't have the desire to do this on the Lord on our own. The Lord grants us this grace because of our depravity. So how does this come about? Next it says, wrought in the heart of the sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. Through the means of grace, generally through the preaching of the Word. When the gospel is preached, the sinner hears the Word. The Spirit convicts the person, indwells the person, resulting in a regenerated heart where the person believes and repents. Next it says, whereby out of sight and sense, meaning the person now has been undeceived. The person now has had the light of the gospel shine on their hearts. They sense it. They see it. They feel it to the very core of their soul. They understand their sinful depravity before the Lord, where before they were unaware, before they were spiritually dead. They did not have this ability. The Holy Spirit shines on their heart. They become aware of their sin. Not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of sins. So true repentance goes beyond legal terror. Just being worried about the consequences of your sin. The person now realizes how repulsive their sins are before the Lord. Next it says, And upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ, to such are penitent. Meaning the person receives security in mind. Holds firm to it. They realize how vulnerable they are outside the grace and the mercy of Christ. They realize that there isn't anything they do that can please them. They realize even when they do good works, there is sin that is wrapped around those good works. They realize there isn't anything they can do that they completely are dependent upon the Lord. They cling to him like a life preserver out in the wavy ocean. They understand fully that they are at the mercy of the Lord. Next it says, he so grieves for and hates his sin meaning it's out of a genuine heartfelt desire to please the Lord. Sinning, the sensitivity to sin. Sinning now becomes heavy. It becomes burdensome. It becomes uncomfortable. It becomes repulsive. It becomes shameful. It's no longer easy to live the sinful lifestyle. When you go back to that lifestyle, it feels very uncomfortable. You no longer enjoy the pleasure from sin that you did before true repentance occurred. Now for the unbeliever, the reason why they refuse to repent is for the love of their sin. But for the believer, true repentance produces heavy grief and hatred of sin. They become very sensitive to sin. Continuing on, it says, as he turns from them all to God. So here we see the result of a changed mind is a transformed life. It recognizes that we do have a serious quarrel with God, unlike what Henry David Thoreau believed. It is not simply a temporal fix. It's not simply a way to get out of a comfortable present circumstance. It's not simply making a vow. It's not turning over a new leaf. Rather, Christ is Lord over every aspect of our lives. And lastly, purposely pursuing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in the ways of new obedience. So true repentance results 
and an everyday desire to serve the Lord. Richard Baxter said this. He said, true repentance is an anger or great displeasure with ourselves for sin and a hatred of sin and a loathing of it within us. If we look at Psalm 32, I'll just read this for you. David loathing his unconfessed sin. For when I keep silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. If you've ever had the flu, and it's been so bad where you can feel it within your bones, and it just hurts when somebody slightly grabs your arm. This is what David is saying in the psalm, that he has this unconfessed sin before the Lord, and he is just completely unsettled by it. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. So it is impossible after true repentance has occurred, after an individual has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the light of gospel has shined on their heart, it is impossible for that person to continue on in their sin with pleasure as it was before. True repentance brings us into a relationship with the Lord where we become sensitized, sensitive to his chastisements. We can easily sense the Lord's pressure upon us until we acknowledge and we confess it. So the power of sin is broken in our lives after true repentance, but the presence still remains. We still have the presence of sin, and we're working out our sanctification all the way to the day that we meet the Lord face to face. But during that time, sin is no longer enjoyable. So closing thoughts then this evening... John Flavel says, true repentance is a teardrop out of the eye of faith. The measure and degree of that sorrow is caused by a believing view of Christ. So the life of faith is the life of love, life of fellowship, a life of communion with Christ. It is a fellowship with him who has an unlimited sympathy with his people's temptations, afflictions, and infirmities. So we're going through these struggles as a Christian. We're struggling with sin. The Lord is right there beside us. The one who had perfect obedience all the way through life now is there comforting us, strengthening us, enabling us to live a lifestyle that is pleasing to him. It is impossible for the life of true faith to be cold, robotic, merely intellectual, meaning there's doctrine to be learned here But there's always going to be a practical application that comes out of it. This isn't just simple head knowledge, but there's practical ramifications for this. It must have the passion of warmth of love and communion because fellowship with God is a result of true repentance. There's going to be a genuine warmth within the heart of the individual. And lastly, the result of true repentance is your implanting into Christ, being united to him, married with him, that he may be your life, your help, and your hope. We become completely dependent on the will of the Lord every moment, knowing that in our weaknesses we are made strong because it's through our weakness where the Lord takes over and gets things done. It's not done through our strength and our efforts, but simply by the Lord through the indwelt spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warnings that you give us. Lord, the seriousness of our sin, the seriousness, Lord, that we stand before you condemned if we have not repented of our sins. Lord, we pray for the hearts of every individual in here and every individual that we encounter during the week. Lord, knowing that it is repentance that you require, Lord, help us be that light 
Help us be the person, Lord, that creates the question, that creates the conversation of what is it that gives us joy. When we're asked, Lord, what is it that gives us our joy? We can turn around and go right to the gospel. We can turn right around, Lord, and have the boldness and the confidence to lay out our sinful depravity and the holiness of God, to lay out the gospel for what Christ has done to save sinners. And that, Lord, unless we repent, Lord, we will like Christ perish. So we thank you for your word and the time and the freedom in this country to be able to sit here tonight and to worship you without fear of persecution, without fear of any government, Lord, coming in, but that we have these freedoms and that we don't take advantage of these freedoms or take them for granted. So thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving our sins. Go before us this week, Lord. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.